29. If, in their attempt to describe their experience of this companioning reality, spiritual men of all types have exhausted all the resources and symbols of poetry, even earthly lovers are obliged to do that, in order to suggest a fraction of the values contained in earthly love. Such a divine presence is dramatized for Christianity in the historic incarnation, though not limited by it, and it is continued into history by the beautiful Christian conception of the eternal, indwelling Christ. The distinction made by the bhakti form of Hinduism between the manifest and unmanifest God seeks to express this same truth, and shows that this idea, in one form or another, is a necessity for religious thought. Further and detailed illustration of spiritual experience in itself as a genuine and abiding human fact, a form of life, independent of the dogmatic interpretations put on it, will come up as we proceed. I now wish to go on to a second point, this, that it follows that any complete description of human life as we know it must find room for the spiritual factor and for that religious life and temper in which it finds expression. This place must be found not merely in the phenomenal series, as we might find room for any special human activity or aberration, from the medicine man to the jumping perfectionists, but deep-set in the enduring stuff of man's true life. We must believe that the union of this life with supporting spirit cannot, in fact, be broken, any more than the organic unity of the earth with the universe as a whole. But the extent in which we find and feel it is the measure of the fullness of spiritual life that we enjoy. Organic union must be lifted to conscious realization, and this to do is the business of religion. In this act of realization, each aspect of psychic life, thought, will, and feeling, must have its part, and from each must be evoked a response. Only in so far as such all-round realization and response are achieved by us do we live the spiritual life. We do it perhaps in some degree every time that we surrender to pure beauty or unselfish devotion, for then all but the most insensitive must be conscious of an unearthly touch and hear the cadence of a heavenly melody. In these partial experiences something, as it were, of the richness of reality overflows and is experienced by us. But it is in the wholeness of response characteristic of religion, that uncalculated response to stimulus which is the mark of the instinctive life, that this reality of love and power is most truly found and felt by us. In this generous and heart-searching surrender of religion, rightly made, the self achieves inner harmony and finds a satisfying objective for all its cravings and energies. It then finds its life and the possibilities before it to be far greater than it knew. We need not claim that those men and women who have most fully realized, and so at first hand described to us, this life of the Spirit, have neither discerned or communicated the ultimate truth of things, nor need we claim that the symbols they use have intrinsic value beyond the poetic power of suggesting to us the quality and wonder of their transfigured lives. Still less must we claim this discovery as the monopoly of any one system of religion. But we can and ought to claim that no system shall be held satisfactory which does not find a place for it, and that only in so far as we at least apprehend and respond to the world's spiritual aspect do we approach the full stature of humanity. 
Psychologists at present are much concerned to entreat us to face reality, discarding idealism along with other fantasies that haunt the race. Yet this facing of reality can hardly be complete if we do not face the facts of the spiritual life. Certainly we shall find it most difficult to interpret these facts. They are confused, and more than one reading of them is possible. But still we cannot leave them out and claim to have faced reality. Hofting goes so far as to say that any real religion implies and must give us a world view. 30. And I think it is true that any vividly lived spiritual life must, as soon as it passes beyond the level of mere feeling and involves reflection, involve too some more or less articulated conception of the spiritual universe in harmony with which that life is to be lived. This may be given to us by authority in the form of creed, but if we do not thus receive it, we are committed to the building of our own city of God. And today that world view, that spiritual landscape, must harmonize, if it is needed to help our living, with the outlook, the cosmic map of the ordinary man. If it be adequate, it will inevitably transcend this, but must not be in hopeless conflict with it. The stretched-out, graded, striving world of biological evolution, the many-faced universe of the physical relativist, the space-time manifold of the realist philosophy, these great constructions of human thought, so often ignored by the religious mind, must on the contrary be grasped and accommodated to the worldview which centers on the God known in religious experience. They are true within their own systems of reference, and the soul demands a synthesis wide enough to contain them. It is true that most religious systems, at least of the traditional type, do purport to give us a worldview, a universe, in which devotional experience is at home and finds an objective and an explanation. They give us a self-consistent symbolic world in which to live. But it is a world which is almost unrelated to the universe of modern physics, and emerges in a very disheveled state from the explorations of history and psychology. Even contrasted with our everyday unresting strenuous life, it is rather like a conservatory in a wilderness. Whilst we are inside, everything seems all right, beauty and fragrance surround us. But, emerging from its doors, we find ourselves meeting the cold glances of those who deal in other kinds of reality, and discover that such spiritual life as we possess has got to accommodate itself to the conditions in which they live. If the claim of religion be true at all, it is plain that the conservatory type of spiritual world is inconsistent with it. Imperfect, though any conception we frame the universe must be, and here we may keep in mind Samuel Butler's warning that there is no such source of error as the pursuit of absolute truth. Still, a view which is controlled by the religious factor ought to be, so to speak, a hilltop view. Lifting us up to higher levels, it ought to give us a larger synthesis. Hence, the wider span of experience which we are able to bring within our system, the more valid its claim becomes and the setting apart of spiritual experience in a special compartment, the keeping of it under glass, is daily becoming less possible. That experience is life in its fullness, or nothing at all. Therefore it must come out into the open, and must witness to its own most sacred conviction, that the universe as a whole is a religious fact, and man is not living completely until he is living in a world religiously conceived. More and more, as it seems to me, 
philosophy moves towards this reading of existence. The revolt from the last century's materialism is almost complete. In religious language, abstract thought is again finding and feeling God within the world, and finding, too, in this discovery and realization the meaning and, perhaps, if we may dare to use such a word, the purpose of life. It suggests, and here, more and more, psychology supports it, that real and alive as we are in relation to this system with which we find ourselves in correspondence, yet we are not so real nor so alive as it is possible to be. The characters of our psychic life point us on and up to other levels. Already we perceive that man's universe is no fixed order, and that the many ways in which he is able to apprehend it are earnests of a greater transfiguration, a more profound contact with reality yet possible to him. Higher forms of realization, a wider span of experience, a sharpening of our vague, uncertain consciousness of value, these may well be before us. We have to remember how dim, tentative, half understood a great deal of our so-called normal experience is, how narrow the little field of consciousness, how small the number of impressions it picks up from the rich flux of existence, how subjective the picture it constructs from them. To take only one obvious example, artists and poets have given us plenty of hints that a real beauty and significance which we seldom notice lie at our very doors, and forbid us to contradict the statement of religion that God is standing there too. That thought which inspires the last chapters of Professor Alexander's Space, Time, and Deity, that the universe as a whole has a tendency towards deity, does at least seem true of the fully awakened human consciousness. 31. Though St. Thomas Aquinas may not have covered all the facts when he called man a contemplative animal, 32, he came nearer the mark than more modern anthropologists. Man has an ineradicable impulse to transcendence, though sometimes, as we may admit it, it is expressed in strange ways, and no psychology which fails to take account of it can be accepted by us as complete. He has a craving which nothing in his material surroundings seems adequate either to awaken or to satisfy, a deep conviction that some larger synthesis of experience is possible to him. The sense that we are not yet full-grown has always haunted the race. I am the food of the full-grown. Grow, and thou shalt feed on me. 33. Said the voice of supreme reality to St. Augustine. Here we seem to lay our finger on the distinguishing mark of humanity. That in man the titanic craving for a fuller life and love, which is characteristic of all living things, has a teleological objective. He alone guesses that he may or should be something other, yet cannot guess what he may be. And from this vague sense of being in via, the restlessness and discord of his nature proceed. In him, the onward thrust of the world of becoming achieves self-consciousness. The best individuals and communities of each age have felt this craving and conviction, and obeyed, in a greater or less degree, its persistent onward push. The seed of the new birth, says William Law, is not a notion, but a real, strong, essential hunger, an attracting, a magnetic desire. 34. Over and over again, rituals have dramatized this, desire and saints have surrendered to it. 
the history of religion and philosophy is really the history of the profound human belief that we have faculties capable of responding to orders of truth which did we apprehend them would change the whole character of our universe showing us reality from another angle lit by another light and time after time too as we shall see when we come to consider the testimony of history favorable variations have arisen within the race and proved in their own persons that this claim is true often at the cost of real pain sacrifice and inward conflict they have broken their attachments to the narrow world of the senses and this act of detachment has been repaid by a new more lucid vision and a mighty inflow of power the principle of degrees assures us that such changed levels of consciousness and angles of approach may well involve introduction into a universe of new relations, which we are not competent to criticize. 35. This is a truth which should make us humble in our efforts to understand the difficult and often paradoxical utterances of religious genius. It suggests the puzzlings of philosophers and theologians, and, I may add, of psychologists too, over experiences which they have not shared, are not of great authority for those whose object is to find the secret of the spirit and make it useful for life. Here, the only witnesses we can receive are, on the one part, the first-hand witnesses of experience, and on the other part, our own profound instinct that these are telling us news of our native land. Baron von Hugel has finally said, that the facts of this spiritual life are themselves the earnests of its objective. These facts cannot be explained merely as man's share in the cosmic movement towards a yet unrealized perfection, such as the unachieved and self-evolving divinity of some realist philosophers. For we have no other instance of an unrealized perfection producing such pain and joy, such volitions, such endlessly varied and real results, and all by means of just this vivid and persistent impression that this becoming is an already realized perfection. 36. Therefore, though the irresistible urge and the effort forward experienced on highest levels of love and service are plainly one half of the life of the spirit, which can never be consistent with a pious indolence, an acceptance of things as they are, either in the social or the individual life, Yet the other half, and the very inspiration of that striving, is this certitude of an untarnishable perfection, a great goal really there, a living God who draws all spirits to himself. Our quest, said Plotinus, is of an end, not of ends, for that only can be chosen by us which is ultimate and noblest, that which calls forth the tenderest longings of our soul. 37. There is, of course, a sense in which such a life of the Spirit is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Even if we consider it in relation to historical time, the span within which it has appeared is so short, compared with the ages of human evolution, that we may as well regard it as still in the stage of undifferentiated infancy. Yet even babies change, and change quickly, in their relations with the external world. And though the universe with which man's childish spirit is in contact be a world of enduring values, yet placed as we are in the stream of succession, part of the stuff of a changing world and linked at every point with it, our apprehensions of this life of spirit, the symbols we use to describe it, and we must use symbols, must inevitably change too. 
therefore, from time to time some restatement becomes imperative, if actuality is not to be lost. Whatever God meant man to do or to be, the whole universe assures us that he did not mean him to stand still. Such a restatement, then, may reasonably be called a truly religious work, and I believe that it is indeed one of the chief works to which religion must find itself committed in the near future. Hence my main object in this book is to recommend the consideration of this enduring fact of the life of the Spirit, and what it can mean to us, from various points of view, thus helping to prepare the ground for that synthesis which we may not yet be able to achieve, but towards which we ought to look. It is from this standpoint, and with this object of examining what we have, of sorting out, if we can, the permanent from the transitory, of noticing lacks and bridging cleavages, that we shall consider in turn the testimony of history, the position in respect of psychology, and the institutional, personal, and social aspects of the spiritual life. In such a restatement, such a reference back to actual man, here at the present day as we have him, such a demand for a spiritual interpretation of the universe, which will allow us to fit in it all his many-leveled experiences, I believe we have the way of approach to which religion today must look as its best hope. Thus only can we conquer that museum-like atmosphere of much traditional piety, which, agreeable as it may be to the historic or aesthetic sense, makes it so unreal to our workers, no less than to our students. Such a method, too, will mean the tightening of that alliance between philosophy and psychology, which is already a marked character of contemporary thought. And note that, working on this basis, we need not, in order to find room for the facts, commit ourselves to the harsh dualism, the opposition between nature and spirit, which is characteristic of some earlier forms of Christian thought. In this dualism, too, we find simply an effort to describe felt experience. It is an expression of the fact, so strongly and deeply felt by the richest natures, that there is an utter difference in kind between the natural life of use and wont, most of us live it, and the life that is dominated by the spiritual consciousness. The change is indeed so great, the transfiguration so complete, that they seize on the strongest language in which to state it. And in the good old human way, referring their own feelings to the universe, they speak of the opposing and incompatible worlds of matter and of spirit, of nature and of grace. But those who have most deeply reflected have perceived that the change effected is not a change of worlds. It is rather such a change of temper and attitude as will disclose within our one world, here and now, the one spirit in the diversity of his gifts, the one love in homeliest incidents as well as noblest vision, laying its obligations on the soul, and so the true nature and full possibilities of this our present life. Although it is true that we must register our profound sense of the transcendental character of the spirit life, its otherness from mere nature, and the humility and penitence in which alone mere nature receive it, yet I think that our movement from one to the other is more naturally described by us in the language of growth than in the language of convulsion. The primal object of religion is to disclose to us this perdurable basis of life, and foster our growth into communion with it. And whatever its special language and personal color be, for all our news of God comes to us through the consciousness of individual men, 
and arrives tinctured by their feelings and beliefs. In the end it does this by disclosing us to ourselves as spirits growing up, though unevenly, and hampered by our past, through the physical order into completeness of response to a universe that is in itself a spiritual fact. Heaven, said Jacob Burma, is nothing else but a manifestation of the Eternal One, wherein all worketh and willeth in quiet love. 38. Such a manifestation of spirit must clearly be made through humanity, at least so far as our own order is concerned, by our redirection and full use of that spirit of life which energizes us, and which, emerging from the more primitive levels of organic creation, is ours to carry on and up, either to new self-satisfactions or to new consecrations. It is hardly worth while to insist that the need for such a redirection has never been more strongly felt than at the present day. There is indeed no period in which history exhibits mankind as at once more active, more feverishly self-conscious, and more distracted than is our own bewildered generation, nor any which stood in greater need of Blake's exhortation. Let every Christian, as much as in him lies, engage himself openly and publicly before all the world in some mental pursuit for the building up of Jerusalem. 39. How many people do each of us know who work and will in quiet love and thus participate in eternal life? Consider the weight of each of these words. The energy, the clear purpose the deep calm, the warm charity they imply. Willed work, not grudging toil. Quiet love, not feverish emotionalism. Each term is quite plain and human, and each has equal importance as an attribute of heavenly life. How many politicians, the people to whom we have confided the control of our national existence, work and will in quiet love? What about industry? Do the masters or the workers work and will in quiet love? That is to say, with diligence and faithful purpose, without selfish anxiety, without selfish demands and hostilities. What about the hurried, ugly, and devitalizing existence of our big towns? Can we honestly say that the young people reared in them are likely to acquire this temper of heaven? Yet we have been given the secret the law of spiritual life, and psychologists would agree that it represents, too, the most favorable of conditions for a full psychic life, the state in which we have access to all our sources of power. But man will not achieve this state unless he dwells on the idea of it, and, dwelling on that idea, opening his mind to its suggestions, brings its modes of expression into harmony with his thought about the world of daily life. Our spiritual life today, such as it is, tends above all to express itself in social activities. Teacher after teacher comes forward to plume himself on the fact that Christianity is now taking a social form, that love of our neighbor is not so much the corollary as the equivalent of the love of God, and so forth. Here I am sure that all can supply themselves with illustrative quotations. Yet is there in this state of things nothing but food for congratulation? Is such a view complete? Is nothing left out? 
Have we not lost the wonder and poetry of the forest in our diligent cultivation of the economically valuable trees? And shall we ever see life truly until we see it with the poet's eyes? There is so much meritorious working and willing, and so little time left for quiet love. A spiritual fussiness, often a material fussiness too, seems to be taking the place of that inward resort to the fontal sources of our being, which is the true religious act, our chance of contact with the spirit. This compensating beat of the fully lived human life, that whole side of existence resumed in the word contemplation, has been left out. All the artillery of the world, said John Everard, were they all discharged together at one clap, could not more deaf the ears of our bodies than the clamorings of desires in the soul deaf its ears. So you see a man must go into the silence, or else he cannot hear God speak. 40. And until we remodel our current conception of the Christian life in such a sense as to give that silence and its revelation their full value, I do not think that we can hope to exhibit the triumphing power of the Spirit in human character and human society. Our whole notion of life at present is such as to set up resistances to its inflow. Yet the inner mood, the consciousness, which makes of itself its channel, are accessible to all, if we would but believe this and act on our belief. Worship, said William Penn, is the supreme act of a man's life. 41. And what is worship but a reach out of the finite spirit towards infinite life? Here thought must mend the breach with which thought has made, for the root of our trouble consists in the fact that there is a fracture in our conception of God and of our relation with Him. We do not perceive the hidden unity in the eternal being, the single nature and purpose of that spirit which brought life forth and shall lead it to full realization. Here is our little planet, chiefly occupied, to our view, in rushing around the sun, but perhaps found from another angle to fill quite another part in the cosmic scheme. And on this apparently unimportant speck, wandering among systems of suns, the appearance of life and its slow development and ever-increasing sensitization, the emerging of pain and of pleasure, and presently man with his growing capacity for self-affirmation and self-sacrifice, for rapture and for grief. Love with its unearthly happiness, unmeasured devotion, and limitless pain. All the ecstasy, all the anguish that we extract from the rhythm of life and death. It is much, really, for one little planet to bring to birth. And presently another music, which some, not many perhaps yet, in comparison with its population, are able to hear the music of a more inward life, a sort of fugue, in which the eternal and temporal are mingled, and here and there some already who respond to it. Those who hear it would not all agree as to the nature of the melody, but all would agree that it is something different in kind from the rhythm of life and death, and in their surrender to this, to which, as they feel sure, the physical order, too, is really keeping time, they taste a larger life, more universal, more divine. As Plotinus said, they are looking at the conductor in the midst, and, keeping time with him, find the fulfillment both of their striving and of their peace. Footnotes 1. Von Hugel, 
Essays and Addresses on the Philosophy of Religion, page 60. 2. Aeneid 1, 6, 7. 3. Jakob Burma, The Way to Christ, part 4. 4. Opsit Loksit, 5. 100 Poems of Kabir, page 31, number 6. What Religion Is, page 32. Number 7. Augustine, Confession 7, 27. Number 8. My Vision Becoming More Purified, Enter deeper and deeper into the ray of that supernal light which in itself is true. Number nine, the tragic sense of life in men and peoples, page one ninety four. Number ten, T. Upton, the basis of religious belief, page three hundred sixty three. Number eleven, Blake, Jerusalem, twelve, Nicholson, the Divani Shamsi Tabriz. Page 141. 13. Aeneid 5. 14. Kabir, opposite. Page 41. 15. Love, whoso loves thee, cannot idle be, so sweet to him to taste thee. But every hour he lives in longing that he may love thee more straightly. For in thee the heart so joyful dwells, that he who feels it not can never say how sweet it is to taste thy savor. Jacopone de Todi, Lauda 101. Number 16, Isaiah 11, 29, 31. 17, Augustine, Confession 10, 28. Number 18, Autobiography of the Maharashi Devendrana Tagore. Number 19, Le Journal Spirituel de Lucie Christine. Number 20, Autobiography of Maharishi Devendranath Tagore. 21. Roisbrook. The Book of the Twelve Begins. Number 22. Overton. The Life of Wesley. Number 23. R. A. Nicholson. Studies in Islamic Mysticism. Number 24. Dunn's Sermons. Edited by L. Pearsall Smith. Page 236. Number 25. Roisbrook, The Sparkling Stone. Number 26. Bashir E. Yassin, Nicholson, Opsit, Loksit. Number 27. Aeneid 6, 9, 4. Number 28. Revelations of Divine Love. Number 29. Pratt, The Religious Consciousness. 30. Hofting. Philosophy of Religion, Part 2, A. 31. Opposite, Book 4. Number 32. Summa Contra Gentiles, 53. Number 33. Augustine, Confession, 7, 10. Number 34. The Liberal and Mystical Writings of William Law, page 154. Number 35. C. F. Haldane, The Reign of Relativity. Number 36. Von Hugel, Eternal Life, page 385. Number 37. Aeneid 1, 4, 6. Number 38. Burma, The Way to Christ, part 4. Number 39. Blake, Jerusalem to the Christians. Number 40. 
Some Gospel Treasures Opened, page 600. Number 41. William Penn. No Cross, No Crown. End of Chapter 1